Hey, this is Bentley Brown, and you're listening to The Dukan Show. You'll check it out. Bentley Brown in the building. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a marketable name, so I like going for the whole thing. Oh, it's Bentley Brown. It's not just Bentley, you know? I, I appreciate that. Uh, someone told me when I was very young that I should open a pub in that name. And at the time, I was, I was very anti-alcohol. So I was like, you better take that back. Oh, <laughs> it was an offense. <laughs> but it works. It's marketable, you know? Or like, that's what... Hollywood celebrities would choose to change their name to. I really value that advice yeah. um, so that I don't change my name. I've obviously, growing up in like the quote unquote Arab world and Africa and Chad specifically, I've been dealt all kinds of names yes, in of Arabic. Course. Usually anything that starts with ba. Yeah. Like literally anything. Like what? <laughs> yeah, Brahim. Yeah. Uh, we've got Badri, Bakri, <laughs> Binyamin, until all my friends on the, in the neighborhood started saying, Oh, Netanyahu. And yeah. Oh, no. I had to change that one pretty yeah. And it's Amharic, mostly. It's like, like, it's Ethiopian, Benjamin. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> the, the correlation with the car company um, has actually screwed me over. You feel? It didn't work in your favor. I think for the most part, uh, especially in America, you know, there's a few different types of people. Um, there's definitely a subset, let's say, like the hip hop generation, <laughs> which reveres that name. Yes. And it just, it just takes the conversation into like, Money. Yes. <laughs> well, it's like naming your daughter Hennessy. You know what I mean? Like, there's a very specific world where she's yeah. valued. And, you know, and, and you, world, you, my friend, are valued in hip-hop culture. You know, or naming her candy. Like, yeah. <laughs> there are benefits and pros and cons that come with the name. Or it's like my old high, uh, college roommate um, who's Nigerian. His name was Fortune. And I thought that was the coolest name. Yeah, Fortune is a I've good ever name. Heard. Yeah. Fortune is a good name. It's amazing. Until I got to Saudi Arabia. Right. So I was living in Jeddah the past few years before I moved back to the US for my PhD. Right. And in Jeddah, I, I walk up to this basketball court trying to play pickup. Uh, and I meet a couple kids who are like, you know, waiting to hop on the court. So I, we introduce ourselves. And, you know, the guy's name is like, you know, Mustafa or something. And he's like, what's your name? And I said, ben, Bentley, right? Yeah. Bentley or Bentley. Often in Saudi Arabia, I get the response, Ah, Bentley, they say, Yeah. This marra faham tara. Yeah. This guy goes, Ah, oh, Bentley, ah, oh, they say, Oh, it's like my car. <laughs> my car. And you're like, Oh, okay, I'm just here to play pickup, bro. And he was, he was literally waiting for the game, sitting right. on the hood of his Bentley. Oh, oh wow. Yeah, only in Saudi. <laughs> only in Saudi. That's amazing. Maybe Dubai. Maybe Dubai. Yeah. But I'm more in Saudi. I vibe. I vibe it out there. I get it. So, what's your PhD in? It's uh, called critical media practices. Ah. Mm. So are you, are you critical about our media <laughs> practices? I have a lot of comments. Amen. This is, the, this is the platform right. for them. Go so ahead. can you please tell us more about your thesis? Where are you in the process? And For sure. So I'm a filmmaker kind of by craft. Uh, actually in college and in my master's, I studied more interdisciplinary things, sort of like communication, culture, uh, international studies, right. uh, and linguistics. For the PhD specifically, I'm 
working to situate my filmmaking. It sounds so PhD what I'm saying. Just say it. <laughs> Go for it. Right <laughs> with our, believe it or not, our audience is intellectual. Yeah. So get they'll get you. Yeah. So I'm trying to situate the films that I make in a scholarly uh, sort of context. Yeah. And specifically, one thing I'm very interested in, in the, on the scholarly side of things is the idea of disidentifications. 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 Okay. Which is, I think, largely known uh, in the vein of queer theory. There's Jose Esteban Munoz, yes. who wrote a book called Disidentifications. So whether or not he coined it, I'm not exactly sure. Um, usually in academics and in, in when you when you read something and discover something, you right. always find out someone else said it yes. <laughs> 20 right before years you. before. Yeah. 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 But his argument was that for a lot of queer artists, they, uh, you know, at, at one point, had the sort of self-awareness or, I mean, society basically like tells you, you are not like the majority of people, right? You're like yeah. an outsider. You're othered. This you're is othered. your group, you're othered. Yeah. But then even when you're othered, you start to realize, oh shit, I'm not like everyone else in this other category yes. too. Right. So she starts to look at a lot of artists who would then, in the context of their art, uh, start to disidentify, not just from that majority, let's say hegemony society, uh, but also from whatever group they've been lumped into. Yeah. And I like to apply that to nationality. Fair. Right. And to culture in general. And these are like big words that I don't even know if we have a solid definition. What is culture? Like, exactly. You know. I think yeah. we struggle with the yeah. definite. We, I mean, we navigate it as well as we can. But I think the truth is that it's for it's forever fluid and forever changing. And as we try to identify where we fit in the grand kind of fabric of culture we don't fit in anywhere. So exactly. we're constantly so kind of, disidentifying. Yeah. And this is the practice of that where we're constantly, I think within ourselves, we always have these internal conversations then debates with each other and then publicly debated on the show. And the, the show was born from that questioning, right? And you kind of go through this journey where we don't have a, I mean, it's not, a, it's never a solid answer. It changes as we develop and mature into ourselves. We real, we feel that change in I think the show kind of documented that for us really, really well, where we kind of got to play around with that, you know, um, being myself, Sudanese that grew up here and lived abroad, Reem, half Iraqi, half Filipino, grew up in Toronto, Yeah. you know, and I think. And here now. <laughs> and here I've been now, here for 15, 15 years. years. I think this is fair, right? it's fair to say that and, I've been here. You know, and now wow. you, an American that was you were born in Chad. I uh, you grew moved, up moved to Chad as a kid. Okay. Right. Which is yeah. in some ways even more dramatic, right? Because I yeah. was moving at a time when my parents told me I was like nine years old or something when they first shared the news we're moving to Chad. My dad's a doctor. My mom's an engineer. And we were going to work for a, a medical nonprofit, like a Christian medical right. nonprofit humanitarian thing. And at that time, I, I, they told me this news. I went to the bathroom and cried. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Little so Bentley like, <laughs> Brown crying in the bathroom, trying to hold on to his American like yeah. identity. That sounds like yesterday too. Yeah. <laughs> we just found him in the bathroom <laughs> here at the right world downtown crying, trying to hold on to his identity. <laughs> but I was like, at the time I was concerned with how, how am I going to play high school football? Of course. Yeah. Where am I going to find Cheetos? Right. And most importantly, Air conditioning. Where is yeah. Chad? Like, <laughs> right. like where who is who's, Chad? Who who's is, is Chad? You know. Yeah. So and so arriving, I can only imagine what it was like for you to sort of land. And your parents sound like they do what God's work, yeah. <laughs> good work, right? So did you when you landed? Did you how how jarring was that breaking through that atmosphere? Because that that's you know. Oh, so tough. Uh, 
there's some really interesting things. And if I, I mean, this is part of my, this is the beauty of being able to write about these experiences. And, you know, a PhD isn't, isn't maybe for everyone. Yeah. And I'm not here to like pressure anyone into like reflecting and writing, but I would encourage you to yeah. try to write about any of your experiences. Cause as you guys know, on this show, everybody's experience is valid and interesting right. as hell, especially this kind of uh, the themes and the motifs that are coming up for the people that you meet in a place like Dubai. Right. And so when we were first moving to Chad, I, I imagined that I would only learn French. Right. I heard that French was the French and Arabic were the official languages of the country. And there's a, you know, as they say, like for Sudan, yeah. and Chad, by the way, is kind of like a mini Sudan in a lot of ways. Yeah. Shared tribes, uh, similar dialects, that kind of thing. Um, and also largely Muslim North, Christian South. Oh, copy paste. Copy paste. <laughs> Um, and also, uh, I think you guys like supported the re rebellion in Chad. Uh -uh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there are little, little handshakes here and there. Like, hey, I got you, bro. <laughs> I imagined that I would learn French. It Fair would enough. be like closer to the English that I, you know, it was my mother tongue. Right. Um, native tongue. These are all problematic terms. They're all, I know. See, this is Even the thing. then, right? That, that's yeah. part of the Inquisition. When you're in an academic space, you're constantly correcting your, I uh, your, 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 whatever terms you're using. Yeah. So you're always wrong. You're always wrong. You're yeah. always wrong, and yeah. that's okay. And uh, we're always wrong here. We're we're just wrong. Use, use the one that works for today, and we won't hold you to I it. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. When I got to N'Djamena, capital of Chad, the first things people were teaching me were Arabic mm. phrases. Right. right. And I quickly realized, I mean, I was a kid then, but like, oh God, okay. Arabic is the trade language. It's the common language here. And so I was taught, you know, salam alaikum. Uh, these are like, mm -hmm. this is like the Chadian slang. I feel like I feel. Oh, nice. um, uh, and then basically like anytime my brother and I would go outside to go meet up with friends or go play basketball or something, we'd get stopped and like language trained. Trained, right. Because <laughs> so you like, had to defend or yeah, say hello or right. navigate the city. So adults would stop us straight up who don't even know us. So like, yeah, Nasada, Nasada, like is the term for, historically, it's like a derogatory term for Christians, I think. Like, yeah, it is. Yeah. In Chad, it's the Hawajat word. Yeah. So it's like, like the- You're the foreigner or like Muzungu and Muzungu, Swahili. Muzungu. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Which we were just in Zanzibar. Oh. And they, they, I won't even repeat the term because I find it very derogatory. And, you know, speaking of, you know, and it was used to refer to me once or twice, and I had to do everything in my power to just kind of like not get into this right now. Yeah. You know, um, but I think for you, that was like, okay, we're just going to navigate this. I'm just going to take it and I'm going to run with it. And early on, as a kid, I would argue, once friends started telling me this, oh, you're not like other Nasara we've met. Right. You're not like the stereotypical Nasara. Nasara and Chad would largely be the, the very, fairly recent post-colonial French legacy. Right. Mm. So people who literally, whose jobs were to bring them to Chad to sort of, uh, uh, you know, economically benefit in some way or serve the French government. Yes. Yeah, that kind exactly. Of thing. And, and uh, you know, stereotypes were that French people, you know, got drunk and did this and that, whatever. And I wanted to differentiate myself from that. And when I spoke Arabic, when I started to learn Arabic, People would people would say I didn't have to say it. They'd be like, "Oh wow, I yeah. thought you were Nasara. I thought you were. I yeah, thought you were thought one, one of the white French. Yeah, yeah. So I thought you saying. were one of them. Is yeah. what you're saying. But ultimately, that statement means, "Oh, you can be one There's of mine." There's acceptance. Now exactly. you might be one of mine. You're yeah. not one of mine, but you might be. You might be. And so we got encouraged to be as Chadian as possible. Yes, to assimilate. Up. And in a lot of ways, you could see this very immediately with learning Arabic, but also uh, wearing. You know, Kapitani, which is like, uh, I forget the name of Sudan. 
Jalabia? No, no, not Jalabia. No. Sideri? It's a, you, it's a special fabric that you uh, get custom made. It's got okay. embroidery and that kind nice. of thing. Um, and then in Jalabia and that kind of thing as well. My mom grew up wearing what in Sudan is called Tob. Yeah. Uh, and Chad people call it Lafay, similar to the Maur- Mauritanian uh, Malhafa. We were encouraged to do this. Wow. Uh, uh, as often, like as, as soon as possible in the, in the like, you know, effect of assimilating to Chadian identity. So later on, and this plays into my research now, I, I took pride in that moment. Of course. But I'm now realizing, wow, like, should I take pride in anything over another thing? Right. It's mm. a question I, I ask myself every day. Well, I think any first generation immigrant, uh, you know, as a first gen- generation immigrant to Canada, you will inevitably be faced with the question of who do you pledge your allegiance to? Who is the, where, where what is the nation? What is, and all of these are constructs. None right. of them are real. They're all constructed by, you know, um, but in order for us to ground our identity into something, to be able to play pickup with random people in the street, mm-hmm. to be able to feel like this is quote unquote home, we have to reckon with that within ourselves. And I think as we look back, Yes, maybe it wasn't best practices, but did we know better at the time? Did you know better at the time, Bentley Brown? <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> right. I can't, I can't beat myself up for no, it. Exactly. No, exactly. That's so interesting. Yeah, like you made the best choice that was available to you at the time. And it's some, it obviously comes with its own pros and cons. So you kind of try to make the best of what you got and here you are, you know? So it did feed into it somehow. So, okay, so going back to your story. So grew up, in Chad from the age of nine till? Oh, they got the news at nine. I moved when I was 11. Okay, you moved when you were 11. Oh, you had uh, a good two-year yeah, like, onboarding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like onboarding process. <laughs> like seeing a counselor and everything. Oh, no, no, really, not, not till I was 11. Oh, we weren't there yet. <laughs> no, <okay. laughs> and, um, and yeah, so then uh, all the way until university. Um, my, my family still stayed in Chad. Uh, my brother uh, and I are about three and a half years apart, so we, didn't, we never overlapped in college. Oh, okay. Mm. And I went to the U.S. for university, uh, okay. Atlanta. Yeah. And are, is your brother older or younger than He's you younger. are? younger. Okay. So you, yeah, I'm, I'm the oldest in OT is as well. So there is this sense of like protection. Is the word protection is a protectionist practice? Or did you just throw your brother to the Chad, <laughs> Chad Wolves? You, were you guys a team or were you? We had a fascinating thing. I'm an extrovert. Right. Yeah. And he's a little bit more introverted. Right. I don't really buy these terms completely because he's got a lot of really outgoing of parts of his personality. And I had definitely, definitely can appreciate my time to myself as well. But this was really crucial when we moved away from N'Djamena, the capital city, to Ati, which is a small town in the middle of Chad. Yeah. Mm. And suddenly, you know, in N'Djamena, we had like these fallback friends. We had like some of our first friends were like, you know, half Chadian, and half French. So yeah. they're already going through the identity issues themselves. Um, and, and other, basically other like white kids, like European, like missionary kids and that kind of thing. The U.S. Embassy would throw this like monthly party, right? <laughs> where right. Where I could I could find my Cheetos. Yo, yeah, hey. there it is. There you go. Check check one box. Out. Exactly. <laughs> and and then we go to Ati, this small town, and suddenly we are literally the only uh, white kids for like a span of a radius of hundreds of kilometers. Wow. Um. And and there there are, however, uh, other Chadians and kids from Libya and Sudan who had moved to that town. Right. Too. So I find that very fascinating now reflecting on that. Because when you first go somewhere and everything's new, you assume everyone in this place is, is like this thing. Like right. they're like this, yeah. this uh, you know, model of person. I had a moment actually in Chad. I was about like two months into it learning Arabic. 
And we went with a uh, Chadian family, friends, family friends in the same uh, car to go see a concert. And so, of course, the concert's at this, like, Institut Francais, like, you know, no. French Cultural Center. <laughs> whatever, right? right. And as of we're course. pulling into this place, the parking attendant uh, is, is just not understanding my dad. Right. My right. dad, my dad's Arabic at the time. I, I love to make fun of my parents' Arabic. Yeah. Um, uh, but <laughs> it wasn't best practices. <laughs> it wasn't best practices <laughs> right. either. But, but my dad was at the time, at the, he speaks great Arabic. Um, but at the time he was like, uh, and the guy, the guy was like having trouble talking back. Right. And then our friend, uh, Jiber, this guy turns back to like the rest of the car to us. And he's like, he's like, yo, this guy doesn't even speak Arabic. And I had this boom, oh, wow. revelation Whoa, moment, like yeah. not all Chadians speak Arabic, right. you know, and that even within Chad, even Chad's not a monolith. Even within Chad, I'm going to encounter people who are coming from different language backgrounds and yes. cultural backgrounds across the country. So that was an interesting thing that That's we encountered. Huge. For wow. me, it's fascinating because, well, obviously when you went back to Atlanta, right? And um, what little I know, though I do try to read as much as I can, the politics of race in Atlanta, in Atlanta is, I mean, there's a lot to be said. How was that? Yeah. You, because you must have this kind of common thread between, I don't know, just explain my, I can't even get it out. I'm so <laughs> fascinated. I, get, yeah. get, take me where I need to go. All right. So Atlanta's a black majority city. Yes. yes. Um, my roommate was black, American. Right. From... Even in Chad, with our friends in Chad, we have stereotypes about like black people in America. And mm. honestly, growing up in a in a like a white family before moving to Chad, I didn't have like a ton of black American friends, although we had uh, a few. And so I didn't know what to expect going right. to a city like Atlanta, where internally, <laughs> this is the weirdest thing to say on this podcast, but this is the space to say it. Yeah. But internally, when I see when I see black people, like when I see people who look like who I've been living with, yeah, I feel comfortable. That's what I that's what yeah. I wanted to get to. Yeah. Do you you feel more comfortable? I feel more comfortable. Right. The awkward thing is, I have to say something. I have to verbalize it to have that comfort reciprocated. Right. At the time in Atlanta, it was super easy. Okay. And even I'm in a university. I was at Emory University. Mm. It's just kind of its own little bubble yeah. in Decatur, Georgia. Um, they even delineated their own city inside the city limits to like have their own zip code and everything. Oh, wonderful. Mm -hmm. So like a proper university <laughs> city, yeah. if you will, right? And that's how the campus felt. And I, I loved it. I'm coming from Chad, you know, and like I was, I was the fobbiest person you can imagine. I had like <laughs> oversized t-shirts, like my off. khaki pants. Like if I was in the wind, I might fly away. Like, right. ship, ship, you know, nah. and, and my experience fitting into that freshman dorm room yes. with people from all over America and the world too, you know, right was very rich. Mm. Uh, it was the early days of Facebook. There was a Facebook group started called Bentley's Tea is My Cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder who started the group. Yeah. No, I, oh, it wasn't me. Because <laughs> I would, I, my, the only thing I knew to bring people together was I had brought like kilos of loose leaf Chinese green tea from Chad. Because I didn't know where I was going to find it again. <laughs> and I went into that freshman dorm kitchen and would start boiling a shit ton of water and have some peppermint on hand and put it all together. There you go. And then, of course, like a half kilo of sugar. Yeah, of course. Of course the right way to do it. Right. Because you're brewing coke. Yeah. <laughs> Which like, led, led to the cocaine reference. Right, yeah, right, yeah. right. So That's I, amazing. I'm, I'm in love and, with this idea of Bentley Brown arriving at university, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air style, like right? a fish completely out of water. 
But then on the outside, I imagine everyone looked at you and probably just kind of put you in the category until you othered yourself. You yeah. had to, what, you had to other and yourself. What's great this time, he came prepared. When he first moved to Chad, they were, were worried about Cheetos. And now. Funny, now I was like, oh, I'm ready. I'm going to take my own tea with me. Your, your concerns about food and, li- like, and survival are very interesting as yeah. well. I love how they're intertwined. Okay, so you're the guy on campus now, I guess. The white guy in a black dominant school grew up in Africa and trying to build these relationships. Atlanta, black majority. Black the majority school, in Atlanta. The, the school, school, the school was a microcosm. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. The school was very interesting, actually. Interesting. So the school wasn't. It was, it was diverse enough. It, uh, to be honest, I, I, you went to Emory, yes? Yeah. It's quite yeah. multicultural. Okay. Oh, like, it's, so many international students. I speak of it kind of in a romanticized way today, especially yeah. with the whole like wokeism and like, like especially the white woke kind of like academic liberal <laughs> side of things. Where I'm doing my PhD in Colorado right now, right? Okay. But I remember maybe I'm being too romanticized about yeah. this, but at Emory, you you couldn't graduate without having like fasted Ramadan mm. uh, or attended like Diwali uh, or even learned about like like a lot of the white kids were from like Jewish, like New York yeah. backgrounds. Right. You had to be familiar with all those things. All walks of life. Which I thought was a beautiful yeah. thing. I even call it, I kind of joke around. I know you guys have the title third culture in your intro. Yeah. That's one of my building blocks for the dissertation. I'm looking at, is there such thing as a third culture? Mm-hmm. And is, is it even fair for me to say disidentification when society always wants you to identify? Right. It? Yeah. But I would say this is almost like a fourth culture. Is like when you get to the space where you all realize, oh shit, we don't fit in. Yes. Now what do you do? Yeah, and that's that's and its you own process it. of culturization, or you know, yeah, and you start to define it for yourself. That's so interesting because yeah, we we do do that in this investigation somehow. I mean, I wouldn't say we do it well. No, <laughs> you, you we tumble. do it. Like at least <laughs> I'm you're not saying we. Do yeah, it at least well. at least Bentley Brown is in a PhD program for <laughs> right, this, right? Right. We're kind of just. Tumbling through, tumbling through this <laughs> going through the waves like and like, the, oh, so what does this mean? And who are we? And where down. do you fit? And kind of questioning all of it, right? Well, there's a difference between thousands of people hearing your podcast and about eleven reading my dissertation. <laughs> Twelve, I will read your dissertation and understand it. Yeah, that's all. That's all I yeah, can yeah. give you. And today. then I'll wait. I'll wait for Reem to uh, get the synopsis on the show <laughs> I'll be from like, Reem. Listen, listen, listen. So this homie goes from here. Yeah, that's how it's gonna go down. But I, look, look, yeah. I, I must admit. Um, I wish more of us pursued that deep in put in the deep work. Yeah, the inqui- into deep truly inquisition. the deep inquisition into understanding the building blocks of our identity and our culture. Yeah, and I, I thank you for that because I think that you know, as my, everyone has different opinions of, on academia, but for me, revolutionaries came from my university. I went to York University for, for many years, and uh, <laughs> for many many years, and revolutionaries came. I my professors were activists they were in this they were they they fought for what they believed in we would skip class to go you know to a to a rally i miss that and right. i feel like it's you know it's just good to see that it's just honored in in well in bentley brown <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah through and through okay and how does this all translate into your films because you've done a few by now already right so walk us through those so the first films i made were in chad with uh, friends. Uh, nice. I had a friend named Abakar, who was a, a playwright who would write scripts for local theater groups. Nice. And so we made um, like three films back to back to back to back. The final one of which, the third of which, dealt with a Chadian like football team captain dreaming of playing European soccer. Mm. And as his life sort of comes around him, he resorts to drugs 
that allow him to actually hallucinate and imagine he's playing for oh. FC Barcelona. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so the film was called Le Pellerin du Camp Nou, uh, uh, a reference to Camp Nou, the, the Barcelona yeah. stadium. It's sort of like Al Hajj, basically like the, the Hajj the, to Camp, Camp the Nou. The pilgrimage yeah. to yeah. Camp Nou. Yeah. And um, of course, we simplified that. This is, this is multi layered here, but I love it. Arabic and English title was Captain Majid. Yeah, ah. which is a play on the cartoon. The, the cartoon. I was going to say, yeah, okay. Because but the character's had, name was Majid. Ah, oh, wow. Okay. Because yeah. it had a similar story, right? It was something about him. I mean, this, if, if anybody does not know this about Captain Majid, I apologize for ruining your childhood. But the actual story is that he breaks a leg or something, goes into surgery, he's in a coma, and the entire series is in his head. He's dreaming that oh. he makes it as a soccer player. Okay, so I clearly <laughs> missed the prequel or the whatever story. The, I did not know this was. Yeah. I just watched Captain Majid yeah. playing soccer. So that's the, act- that's the anime. Every- that's what the actual anime was. But right. we got the censored version because it's the Arab world. I did not know this. And you're young and they're trying to get There's- you to watch cartoons. Okay, so this entire, <laughs> the entire series is yeah. a conjuring of his imagination. Yeah. That's- Very much like your... Well, how serendipitous. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know that, but I'm going to totally claim yeah, that. Yeah, 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 you should. Okay, that's Fact amazing. check it first, by the yeah. way. But like, and I how think- young were you guys? We were, we were like uh, 18. Okay. So we were 16, 17, starting to make these films. Yeah, and then see, that, I didn't yeah. even know the Captain Knight thing until, you know, adulthood quite recent. So I would assume y'all don't even know that at uh, the time. I don't know. I got to go check did. with a bucker now. Okay. Yeah. And then the next, so, so, that, so you were already very deep thinkers. You were already tackling... Abakar was. I don't know if I was. Yeah. <laughs> well, you found someone. Yeah. That I was, was like, I've watched a lot of movies. I think I can. I can, I can do, do this. Shots that yeah. resemble those in movies. And so the next. It, so what was the next phase after that? Well, that film itself went to Rotterdam. Oh wow! Rotterdam. Well uh, done. Ironically, in a category called "Where is Africa?" <laughs> <laughs> do you know? Let me. Can I just? Can I just? Can we talk about critical race theory right now? Like, don't even pretend you know where it is. Like, where is it? Wow. Where is it? Yeah. Is it in the middle of the map? Is it a west of us? None. Is it east of us? Yeah. And mostly flat earthers. Okay, sure. so <laughs> where is Africa? <laughs> Funny thing, I, I was on a soccer team uh, in Chad. That was one of my, and Ati is one of my first ways to meet friends. Um, you know, we would jog barefoot for 30 minutes to an hour before practice wow. and then have the practice. And uh, it was just a great way to meet people. Abakar, the filmmaker, uh, included. Mm. And one time before a game, and I don't know if this is the best pregame practice, but we would... <laughs> we have to, I always have to watch myself using Chadian words because they may translate into other things in other Arabic dialects. Right, right, I right. keep myself yeah. in check here. But we had this dish called masisi, right? Masisi. <laughs> Where... You have like rice with like uh, milk and stuff. And it's yeah. just like a super carby kind of thing it that we would thick. eat pregame, right? Wow. It's almost kind of like roasted almost. You know what I'm saying? This has been in the, in the halal or whatever for like a while. Yeah. So it's got that kind of like sweet, uh, you know, burnt taste to it or whatever. So we're eating this before a game. Uh, like like the greats. Brave. Like the greats. Very brave. And my friend, uh, my friend, uh, I think of all his nicknames, Khalat, the Kabul. We're a big nickname, yeah. big nickname culture. <laughs> right. you know? um, anyway. He says, take from the middle of this dish. And I'm like, this is getting deep here. Take from the middle. That's so, so yeah. interesting. Like I reach my hand, I grab like rice from the middle of the dish. Right? And he says, you have just taken from the middle of the dish in the middle of the high school in which we're sitting. I'm like, <laughs> okay. Like, thanks, thanks, Sherlock. You know? And he's like, this high school is situated in the middle of Atia mm. town. And Atia is in the middle 
of Chad. Uh-huh. I'm like, okay, right. I see where you're going I, now. I, well, yeah. Okay, yeah. And Chad is, is in, in the, the middle, middle of Africa. Africa. Yep. And Africa <laughs> is in the middle of the world. So if you're asking where is Africa, it's basically right in the middle of that dish. If yeah. you're wondering <laughs> where it is, where you it, know, where it all began. probably in the middle of Bentley Brown's stomach right before a game. <laughs> um, yeah, if you're wondering, that's your Google map pin for you. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I, so. That is so interesting. I'm in love with the idea of deep thinkers, of young men tackling the world yeah. in their own po poetic way um, and really bringing voice to, and light to places which don't necessarily get seen in mainstream, you know. Yeah, OT and script in a different narrative, yeah. right? Because the mainstream narrative has, your experience is not there. That's not being told, that <laughs> yes. stories have not seen, right? I thought I was the minority. Bentley Brown is the minority. <laughs> I just think I've been one-upped by the minority, you know. Yeah. You are the minority, Bentley Brown, by dislocation, <laughs> if you will, this in brackets. For sure. So uh, eventually I go back to college in the United States and, um, you know, I, I, I had this filmmaking was kind of like a craft, kind of like a hobby, I guess, yeah. which is another thing to, to maybe explore in conversation at some point too, this idea of the arts versus the sciences or like sort of mm -hmm. like the, the well-paid career versus like the riskier endeavors, which isn't really, you know, you can't, there's a lot of risky business and, yeah. and, and, and even becoming a doctor or something yeah. too, you know, but I, I, I go back to the U.S. and I'm not really like looking at myself as a filmmaker. It actually took kind of a while to keep on making those films and to return to that. And in the meantime, I wound up working in Sudan. Mm. Um, so Jimmy Carter, the former U.S. president, had his Carter Center in Atlanta, which had ties to the school. So we would take classes that he mm -hmm. like designed the syllabus for. Or he would come visit, lecture for or whatever. So I wound up interning at, at that Carter Center and then went to Sudan as an election observer as my, like, basically my first job out of college. So nice. would this be in the space of IR? Like, is this an international so relations much. space? Yeah, yeah okay. the NGO world kind yeah. of thing. So I got the deep dive into that at the time. But I missed filmmaking. Yeah. And uh, I was meeting filmmakers in Sudan. Wow. And the people that, we were all in the same kind of boat. We were working these jobs as kind of like a contracty job thing, but we wanted to do something else. I had a friend of mine who was a poet and he had actually left medical school in Sudan um, because, uh, after years of going to the library, getting a medical textbook, and then and sticking, you know, like a Nietzsche text or something in right. the middle and trying <laughs> trying to hide it, you know. So did he finish school? Did he finish med school? No. Oh, so he dropped out of med school? He eventually left the career, yeah, wow. Wow. completely. So I'm, I'm meeting person after person like this. Um, another one is a filmmaker, uh, Ali Asir al-Khatim, uh, in Sudan. Uh, who was a just a straight up DP, like she was working wow. for NGOs, but was looking to shoot films. Yeah, and that cultured in me a desire to go back to the, sort of the creative world. Yeah, I go back to the U.S. and I'm writing a script that was based on my experiences running into Sudanese people in America. Nice. Right, that's what became Faisal Goes West, which is about a family moving from Sudan to the U.S. And what happens is I go back to to the U.S. and I'm looking always always looking for Chadians. To reconnect, and I've I've very rarely come across Chadians mm. in in the United States. Yeah. I've had one run-in with Chadians in the United States, and a handful, and even in Sudan, just a few. Saudi Arabia, a lot more. Uh, France, you know, a few. Uh, one time in in America, I was at an IKEA, and two guys passed by me, and they're like, I'm like, how? Yeah. <laughs> what brought you here? I usually run into Sudanese people. So that's yeah. why Faisal Goes West focuses on a Sudanese, Sudanese family. As opposed to Chadian. These were the, the people I was meeting, the friends I was making that connected me mm. to that side of, my, of myself. Okay. That's cool. And then that was Rami 
Rami Dawood. Rami Dawood yeah. acted as Faisal in that film. Um, and since then, I've kind of transitioned to more personal narratives. Mm. So I've done a lot of archival video work, um, taking these old home videos that either friends contributed, people who would like visit our family in Chad or like, uh, you know, my friends who had cameras or, you know, the, the local town videographer. You know, my dad threw, he threw a, threw a party for a friend who people say was miraculously healed. Wow. Um, had collapsed in his yard and was taken, rushed to the local hospital in Ati. There's no electricity. Oh, wow. <laughs> for a while, yes. he's, he's uh, you know, operated on open air. Wow. Winds up swelling and everything. And my dad's a doctor, but he, he feels helpless, can't really do anything. Takes him to N'Djamena, drives him 10 hours by dirt road to the capital city. There's really not much difference in care there. It's just a heavier painkillers or whatever. Wow. So my dad prays with him. He comes back the next morning. The guy's sitting up in bed and he said, it says, I've been healed, you know? Wow. So these are kind of stories that, that you know, I grew up seeing and yeah. observing and would hear, especially from my parents. Uh, and my dad was so enthralled by this experience that he threw a concert. <laughs> he threw like a concert party with like, you know, Fanani and, and yeah. the whole band. My Arabic teacher, by the way, for, you know, Fusla reading and writing was a, was a musician. Oh, that's uh, amazing. Muhammad Ali Bukhari is his name. And he was on the keyboards that night. And you know, we had local videographer <laughs> filming yeah. it. So I had this whole rich that archive really of video. Great. That's just one moment among many um, that I've gone on to make other films with. And so this- That's this, wonderful. This was documented. Yeah. This expo, a celebration of life, a personal, uh, you know, a celebration of the miracle of life in so many ways. And a delve into a personal narrative that I just think is so unique. Like, I think that the path that life has taken you on has brought you to- these places where you have many different passports. You can access many different areas that most people simply don't have access to. And so ha tell us about Revolution. Yeah, Revolution from Afar yeah. is the most recent film that I've made while doing my PhD um, in Colorado. Mm -hmm. It focuses on Sudanese American artists, uh, musicians, poets who are grappling with being cut off from Sudan yes. during the Sudan revolution in 2019. Right. So uh, as an academic space, I'd gotten yeah. a small grant to make a project I pitched to the university about the revolution in Sudan uh, in spring of 2019. Cause I felt, oh my God, like this is the biggest event I've ever seen on the African continent. Uh, I remember growing up, even in, even in Chad, friends would have posters of Omar al-Bashir in their living room. Wow. Um, the countries are so intertwined. Yeah. You know, there's a main thoroughfare in Njemena called Avenue Nimeri, named after, after another previous, previous yeah. president. Sudanese president. Yeah. So to see Omar al-Bashir being ousted essentially as a result of popular protests, people marching in the hundreds of thousands in Khartoum was a very powerful moment. Right. And there was a lot at stake, especially when the military transitional council came yes. in and sort of like strong-armed yeah. to control the situation. And I was just shocked that the international news wasn't covering this. I know that sounds so naive of me to say that. It's extremely naive of you to say that. <laughs> and you're in a PhD program, but let's, yeah. let's continue. We'll let that one <laughs> let's, let's go ahead. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I definitely want to help like shine light on this, yeah. but even not in the Khartoum perspective. One thing I had, when I was working in Sudan, I lived outside of Khartoum mostly. Mm. My job was literally to travel and to meet with like opposition political party members and to hear them complain about Motamar Lothani, like the wow. uh, party, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I was all, all over 10 states in Sudan. I had a house in Damazin, mm -hmm. had a house in Kadugli, uh, and I was just Bro, you've seen more of Sudan than I have. I know. You're more <laughs> Sudanese than I am. Yeah, I would, I would, well. <laughs> my, my, in the third chapter of my PhD, I would refuse to answer that question. Oh, Fair okay. Enough. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, 
one thing I did notice is that there was always a disconnect, even in Sudan. It's the whole thing. There's yeah. no country, no society, no yeah. town, no neighborhood is a monolith. Yeah. Even in Sudan, there's a disconnect between Khartoum yes. and the areas outside of Khartoum. Yeah. And there was a campaign I noticed when I, when I was there to block events from reaching the ears and eyes of people in Khartoum. So Khartoum Sudanese, to me, were very different than Sudanese people outside of Khartoum. That's right. Also very different than Sudanese people in the diaspora. You know, the whole stereotype of like the ozone Sudanese, you of know, course, go to the yeah. ozone coffee shop. That, was, that yeah. was my place, first place that I went <laughs> when I went to Khartoum. And so I wanted to share something from outside of Khartoum. Now, when I realized I couldn't travel, I was to go there. Like I was trying to apply for a visa as I always do, you know, and, and it just didn't seem like it was going to happen, especially me showing up like a bag of cameras and my <laughs> right, right. And the last to, person yeah. they're going to have a field <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, I, I was like, okay, if I feel anguish for not being able to go back to Sudan during this moment, what are my Sudanese How do they feel? American friends yeah. feeling not being able to go back? So I talked to people, reconnect with Rami Dawood, who yeah. was, you know, the lead in Faisal Goes West. To other friends, um, Amir Al-Khalifa, Odyssey, mm -hmm. a rapper in New York, yeah, New York. Sinkane. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm like, what are you guys going through right now? And the diversity of responses right. was so beautiful. So I started recording these conversations Khalid al Bey mm -hmm. is a, a the political cartoonist, uh, yeah. the artist, the Khalid al Bey. Do I need even to say a title? Um, was organizing a book launch in New York at the time that was bringing together all these And musicians. he shot his own little documentary about his trip while he was there. I remember that. And so yeah. we reconnected there. And then we happened to have there's this group called SAPA, Sudanese American Public Affairs Association. That's very cool. Sounds like a grant. It feels like it's in Virginia. Sounds like a grant Virginia. to me. Yeah, I, I, Virginia? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The whole like Jalia system. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, your Sapa gets like Arabized all the time. And we wind up having a conference in Colorado, which is where I was doing my PhD. So it all works. It all kind of yeah. came together. So Bentley Brown, how do you check your white privilege? thought you were going to ask about the Sudanese friends. Yeah, well, no, eventually. <laughs> I'm going to get to OT in a minute yeah, because yeah. obviously that's the extension. But for me, I'm curious as, you know, as we navigate, you you navigate the world looking a certain way. I don't, if I met you in Dubai Mall, I would not know the depth and wealth that your fa the fabric you're made of is. So how do you navigate that in Tough the one. States or in, you know? Well, the United States, I think, is different than other places right now in the terms of this dialogue. Yeah. I view America as being very American-centric. Mm -hmm. um, I would almost argue that a lot of the, uh, let's say, like, liberal ideas and people who are now giving their voice towards rights movements are still doing so from a sort of ethno-nationalist, kind of like America's the best place yeah. mentality. Um, there's not much incorporated in terms of other ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult for me to even talk about the term white privilege in America versus in Chad versus in yes. Saudi Arabia versus in Dubai today versus it's so complicated that I, I do struggle to answer that. Fair. So as a kid, you can, you can imagine, like I knew I was <laughs> looked different. Oh, they let you else. know. If you didn't <laughs> know, they let you know. Yeah. And Kids are yeah. there are until the day I die, uh, sadly and good in a good way, but there are certain like kind of kingly privileges yes. that I will have as a white person that people will often go out of their way to try to help me find the place I'm going to go, or they're going to serve me, host me in a way that's more frivolous than someone who looks a different way. Um, for me, and identity-wise, that puts me in the box sometimes. And obviously, like, I don't maybe want that special treatment. Of course. But that's, that's one sort of outgrowth of the, of the privilege. The other one is uh, deeper, and it's about, you know, 
my friends that I grew up with didn't have the opportunity that I had to go to the United States for college. And I knew this as a kid. And I knew that the time would come, I would turn 18 and I would move to the United States for university. And to this day, no, no friend in that group of friends has made that journey to that sort of like level of education with very few exceptions. And they're, you know, more local, locally situated, right? So people that went to Algeria yeah. or they went to uh, maybe to France, that kind of thing. Mm. That itself is a privilege, but it's also kind of an opportunity yes. for me. And I want to get my story out, but I also want to get the stories out of those people that weren't able to do it. Wonderful. And you feel that sense of responsibility? All the time. Yeah. I think he's basically built his life on that. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so you can imagine how it gets tough when I'm in a room of mostly white academics yes. and they ask the question that you asked. When yes. I see you ask that question and even, you know, just profiling you. Well, yeah, stuff, like if I'm you like, if you're just tuning in, I'm a woman, I'm a <laughs> Iraqi Filipino woman of color. Always yeah. have been, always will be. Yeah. So like I'm not gonna if you ask me that question, I'm like, oh wow, fantastic question. Let's right. dive into that. If a white academic asked me that question, I'm like, fuck you, man. Like, yeah. who the fuck are you to say that? And and I've had very disrespectful in, in interactions with academics where I'll share something very personal to me and they'll see like a trailer of a film and I'll talk about why this is important. And I'll say migration, migration and moving across countries and these people were stripped of their home and then I did this and I came over. And someone will be like, um, what gives you the right to make a film in Arabic? <laughs> yeah, but... So this is the, these are the rooms we will, I will not we won't be able have to access. In. So I'm, how do you respond to that? What gives you the right, Bentley? <laughs> <laughs> how do you, do you just, do you just give her a good? Well played. Well played. <laughs> well played, Bentley Brown. No, the thing is when I do respond, um, and if I can be patient, which is a very big struggle, my, my number one philosophy with this, and I'm the first person to learn this thing, is to try to learn this, is grace. Yes. So mm. for all the struggle for equality, for all the like excruciating difficulties and prejudice and racism and hierarchies and wealth and lack of wealth that we go through, we're trying to navigate and fix the problem all the time. I think if we can opt to grace first, yes. that's the best thing. Now I'm a bad example of that. <laughs> so my heart rate's going up. They say something, they ask me a question. What gives you to make this the right to make this film? Where do you get the agency? Who, whose stories do we get to tell? Blah, 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 blah. If I can be patient and say, well, I, I grew up in Chad. I speak Arabic. In one case, actually, I had a short film that was a photo album I had discovered while jogging in Jidda. Oh, wow. It was like in the dirt. There were oh. ants over it and everything. So me being who I am, of course. I'm like, ooh, <laughs> see what's going on here. I opened this photo album. And the whole album is full of pictures from a, from a reel, a film, like an actual photo. Yeah, yeah like a been, film, like yeah. camera. It's yeah. been a long time. It's been developed. The films, have, the, the pictures have been developed. Mm -hmm. Of a house, oh. completely empty, with no humans in it, oh. but lived in. Oh, how interesting. Mm. At the time, Saudi Arabia was going through a big Saudization yeah. movement in which a lot of people of non-Saudi nationality, and that can include people who were born there, right? A lot of Sudanese people, a lot of, Yemenis, a lot of, uh, you know, Filipinos, like everybody's born in Saudi Arabia, but they don't have nationality because of racism. Racism. Don't come after me. Don't come yeah. after me. No, no. This, <laughs> this is the one show where you can say it. Yeah. Yeah, it. It's racist. I am very fascinated by this album. Yes. And I'm asking questions like, who was living here? Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's, a, there's a little basketball goal attached to the dresser. Who wow. shot basketball? Yeah. Yeah. Who shot on that hoop? Why did they leave? 
or, or is this just like a really old school way of selling a house or something to show the room? <laughs> I, I don't know. So literally those were the questions I had in this like little short film thing. And I got asked by the one person not in the class who was visiting to like critique or whatever. Oh, okay. I got asked, um, you know, what gives you the agency to make this film, to ask these questions? So I had to like mm. deep breath. You're like, this person is here to critique. Yeah. <laughs> this is a film yes. about, I'm asking questions about people maybe being forced to leave their house. Yeah. It's a album I found on the road while jogging. And I was in Saudi Arabia. And at the time, actually, I had to leave Saudi Arabia. <laughs> I speak Arabic. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. I feel very much at home in Jiddah, the place that, that's all I got. Yeah. And that person came up and apologized to me of after course. the Q&A and said, <laughs> as a trans woman, I shouldn't have assumed all these things about you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like we're all guilty of it. We're all least. human. Yeah. We're all human. And I think grace, if, if there's any great place to kind of, you know, kind of close out the episode, a reminder that grace will save us because... In those moments where we could have been, where we, we can exercise, we could get further and run further together when we have grace towards each other and grace towards ourselves. And I could, if I could close myself with a quote from the film Revolution from a Farm, where Sinkane, who's a musician, Sudanese-American musician, the whole film people are debating what does it mean to be Sudanese? Am I, can I be 100% Sudanese, as this is what they're discussing? and be 100% American at the same time. Mm. And there's this obvious agreement. Everyone says, oh, pff, whoa, I definitely feel too American to be Sudanese and too Sudanese to be American. Mm -hmm. But they're also here at this turning point in Sudan Sudan's history saying, do we have a right to go back to Sudan? Mm -hmm. You know, you could, on the surface, someone like me, I might see their situation and say, damn, you've been in Kansas for the last yeah. 20 years. I don't know if you should be going to Sudan to have a stake in the country's future. Then I'm like, wait a second. Maybe your parents left Sudan for that very reason. Yes. Because they couldn't say what they wanted to about Sudan. They didn't have the stake in the country's future. And now there's an opportunity to do that. And Sinkane says something to the extent of, we have an opportunity now to define what it means to be Sudanese. He says, it doesn't matter how you look. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter your religion. It doesn't matter any other part of your identity if you are Sudanese, you're Sudanese. I think that's where being able to accept people's identities and who they are, who they define themselves as who they are, is a very deep form of respect. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. This has been wonderful. And I hope that this episode gives people a moment of reflection and deep inquisition the way I'm sure it's leaving us after the session. So, yeah, I hope the listeners really, like, take the time and enjoy this and if you have anything to share and let's have this conversation. I feel like it needs to be had also outside of the podcast. So let's talk about this more frequently. Where can people find you? I'm on social media at Weld Brown. Yeah. W-A-L-D-B-R-O-W-N. <laughs> yeah. Translation for the non-Arabic speakers. That's the son of Brown. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Right. And uh, yeah, YouTube as well. Thank you for kicking it with us today. I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode as much as we enjoyed creating it for you. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast at to stay up to date with all our conversations. Also, if you don't mind, hit us with the five-star rating, leave a comment, let us know how you feel about the show. That way, it could also help others find the show. And be sure to share it with your friends and family, whoever you think can benefit from it. You can holler at us on all social media platforms at The Can Show. We'd love to hear from you. 
Or you could drop us an email to hello at thecanmedia.com. Salam.